Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. My guest this week is Alison Goldsworthy. Alison is the Chief Executive of the Depolarisation Project and the co-author of the forthcoming book, Poles Apart. Our conversation covers the art of agreeing to disagree, I get pulled up for my mockery of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and we ask whether if there really is a culture war, surely we're all losing. Alison, thanks very much for joining me. I think it's uh, early morning in San Francisco. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. It's uh, yeah, not not time for me to go and eat as much food as I would like to be eating right now. Unfortunately, I feel like it's dinner time. You're my third call of the morning, and it's eight a.m. I, I, I can only aspire to such levels of productivity at the moment. But I, uh, <laughs> I didn't say I was productive. I was just up early. <laughs> I. Uh, I wanted to kick us off. We're going to be talking about polarization and I wanted to kick us off by, uh, by just kind of asking you, it seems in some ways obvious, but how do you describe polarization? Like, How do you kind of, you know, when you, when someone says, well, what is it? What do you say? Yeah, that's a great question because it's not always obvious. So some think of people think of polarization around issues. So I really think that there shouldn't be gun control and someone else really thinks that there should be gun control. That's not my position. But, you know, like where there's a huge divergent range or on something like Brexit, where people are very firmly leavers or remainers. And that's an interesting part of polarization. But what I really start to try and look at and what feels like a new phenomenon is what's called effective polarization, which is where those identities entities align and people increasingly unite behind political labels. So in the States, that's between two labels. In the UK, it's a bit more factionalized. And what happens in Scotland is clearly different to what happens in England. And again, that's different in, in how it manifests in Italy. But it's an increasing tribal tendency to spend time with people who agree with you politically and share your political labels and to ascribe those same labels to the people who are not you, even if that's not accurate. And is that so is that a side effect of or a product of uh, an increasing tendency towards people using putting identity front and center in their politics? Well, I think I'm sure that's I'd be fairly confident in saying that's related. I haven't seen actually a, a study that's been like a randomized control trial that particularly looks at exactly that thing. But it feels intuitively correct based on other things I've seen. And, uh, you know, the more you use a label, the more likely people are to pick it up. But don't forget that we naturally categorize people in our heads anyway, for very, very good reason. You know, like there's a reason that stereotypes exist or we try and generalize things because it 
helps you recognize the familiar or with good patterns. And, and in a long, long time ago, in prehistoric days, that would help keep us safer. You know, you would recognize people that you could trust or that you wouldn't trust. And our brains have not evolved at the speed that many of our institutions or our ideals have. And so actually, that's one of the things that's quite challenging for people. So you, our institutions, in a way, you would suggest are ahead of where our psychological makeup is at the moment? or Yes. Yeah. So I would say that. So, I mean, like our brains and how our brains function have not changed for tens of thousands of years, you know, and we're putting them, you know, clearly the world around us and our environment has changed hugely from when we were cavemen and how we, we all operated. You know, I, I suspect even if you go back 500 years telling people about, you know, the existence of modern democracy would be startling. If you go back a hundred years and you look at the development of home appliances and how the role of women has changed. And then more recently, you know, the more cliched one is to look at technology and, and the effect of that. So those are very huge changes. And the way our brains operate has not significantly changed. And so I wanted to ask you as well, to what degree you feel like the kind of polarization that we've got going on at the moment um, and different interest groups, however they might define themselves, competing against each other. How much is this, you know, this is kind of something that is factored into democracy. It's something that the founding fathers in the States thought about in terms of how interests compete. It's part of conversations in ancient Greece. Are we not in danger of assuming that there's a kind of... um, there's a uniqueness to our moment in history where in fact we're just dealing with a kind of particularly amplified or amped up moment in democratic discourse. Well, so just to pull on your, so I think both of the things that you've just said are probably true. So one, there is a pattern. This is not the first time in our history that we have polarized, you know, and there are some quite uncomfortable places where this kind of polarization and when democratic safeguards fall, what tends to happen? So, I mean, people, people often reach for, for Nazi Germany, but you can see with what happened in Chile or in Venezuela or, you know, all sorts of other places, the growth of extremism and that democracy is not necessarily safe. So, you know, that's the thing that actually there's quite a bit of debate around the founding fathers and people's relations to formal political parties in the sense that we now know them and whether factions are a completely new thing. I think the degree of professionalism and labels that apply to parties now is quite distinctly different to even a couple of hundred years ago. So things like the phrase Her Majesty's loyal opposition wasn't used, I think, until 1823 or 1824 first. And that's, you know, so the us and them things that particularly come about as a consequence of that and those those very expressive labels and logos and all sorts of things that attach to it. That is new. The other thing that is particularly new and I think acts as a catalyst to things we're already predisposed to is, of course, the role of tech and how often we're exposed to things that reinforce the labels and trigger us and can take us to more extreme positions than we would naturally have. And the balance, the counteracting and balancing forces against that are not in place at the minute. Uh, danger of spreading fake news. Have you checked that it wasn't Jacob Rees-Mogg that first used the phrase Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition? No, no, <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think it was, though I'm sure he would correct me if my years were out of date. You know, and I mean, it, it's easy sometimes for people to parody Jacob Rees-Mogg, but uh, actually, you know, and his politics is a billion miles from my own. But he is thoughtful and actually politics could probably do with a few more very thoughtful people in it. Um and I think one of the things about polarization is learning to recognize talent and good qualities in people who you profoundly disagree with. And that's a 
effortful and exhausting thing for our brains to do. So people tend not to do it because they're tired and human. It's a powerful point which which triggers the feelings of guilt and discomfort in me in immediate response. But I have at other times said that actually one thing Jacob Rees-Mogg is supremely good at is is arguing in a very kind of in a, in a fair and balanced way. You don't see him get he's, he's very rare that he gets uh, riled up or or combative. He's always kind of uh, discursive in how he takes on issues. Um, you talked about how tech is a new factor in how we're polarizing, and I wanted to ask if you kind of had a sense of what you think is the root cause of our polarization at the moment. Because I, at various times in this podcast and different episodes, you know, we've looked at, we've talked a bit about the business models that lie behind media and their need to seek clicks because of the advertising economy or the attention economy. We've talked about algorithms and and incentives for behavior on social media. I think there's something you can do about looking at the role of political parties and professional communities. Caters. Um, do you think there is kind of one root cause? Would you single out tech as being the the thing that has driven the unique the uniqueness of our moment? No, no, I wouldn't. And actually, um, in the nicest way, I think it's intellectually lazy when people do that um, because this is a systems problem, and it's how different things interact with each other. So yes, tech is a bit different now, but actually, there's lots of other things that are different. You know, there is a huge business case for polarization as well and what it can yield. So like Nike, when it took its position that it did on Colin Kaepernick, its sales went up, I think, 53% the following weekend. And in in some ways, in many ways, I think, you know, like the campaigner in me loves that. I think it's great. People are rewarding and using their their money with where it goes. But also that can be used against you. And if you look at, for example, the sales of very political paraphernalia, and some of them are really quite unpleasant, like they're a bit satire. Some of them are just terrible satire. Um, But some of them are really like not nice that you can just see even wandering around the streets of London when I was last there, how suddenly you get like troll dolls of Donald Trump or of Boris Johnson being sold. Like there's many to be made in doing this as well. So there's all sorts of things that are driving it to behave differently from, you know, you touched on uh, tech platforms, but also, you know, this can be everything from big donors to small donors to some of the structures behind that to foreign actors to people who are just out to make a bit of disinformation through to extremists to queer the public space, you know, and do an awful lot worse than that, to the role of lobbyists, to party activists, you know, all of these things trigger and reinforce different loops. And, you know, it's a natural part of the process to polarize and to depolarize. But the speed and the extent to which it is happening now is what I would say is is different. It is not just down to tech. And we shouldn't look for one convenient baddie. Having said that, they do need to step up the plate and they're a huge part of the problem. And I, 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 um, I want to get on to sort of maybe what some of the solutions are in a, in a little bit, but sometimes it feels like so much of the challenges, the challenges that we face are about the kind of, um, basic programming of human nature. And this is, maybe this is what you were talking about when you were talking about the fact that our brains haven't evolved at pace, but the, the way in which algorithms, for example, get us to react really quickly to stuff that provokes a strong emotional reaction. So much of this feels like the dice are kind of loaded in favour of further polarisation. It makes it feel that, that it's going to be incredibly hard to unpick this. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So the pull, the pull to polarize or to factionalize, however you want to use it, like listeners, I hope will uh, uh, do some de-Americanization on this for whatever is appropriate to them. Yeah, the pull to do that is huge. And normally what resets or the, the safeguards against that, you know, which exists around checks and balances and manifest in different ways in, um, in different institutions. But often it will be a, um, a big supernatural or superordinate goal that will bring people back together. So that can be in a big shock to the system. So war, famine, pandemics, that kind of thing, where you have a common enemy that is different. Um, I think I could make a particularly good case, especially in the States, that things have got to a stage now where that there is a common enemy to fight, particularly one that isn't visible in Corona, um, has not been enough to bring people back together. And instead, people have extremely partisan responses in terms of compliance, who they believe, how they process information, how that's knocking on. And I think that becomes very, very challenging um, to try and unwind and undo. Um, really difficult because people are, um, we should talk about this, but you know, it, people really struggle to update their beliefs. They struggle to say that I got something wrong or even that some new information has come to light. So it's perfectly legitimate. And we are fairly terrible, particularly some of the activists and campaigner types at rewarding people who have done that. They tend to be pilloried, like saying sorry very rarely pays off saying that you've changed things is a screeching U-turn from the government. You know, all of that kind of thing doesn't always help stuff either. Actually, just this afternoon, there's a um, Keir Starmer has said that he said he said the wrong thing about the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's like and it's already being um, panned by people who might expect to pan him for uh, U-turning again and so on. And actually, it, to me at least, his point seemed fairly reasonable. But um, you know, it's just one example within the last half hour of exactly what you're talking about. Um, you mentioned Nike and Colin Kaepernick and that moment, and that is one of the sort of symbolic moments in what are increasingly described as the culture wars. Um, and I wanted to, to ask a couple of questions about kind of this concept of the culture wars, because my uh, my first way of approaching this was that it was a kind of Bannon-esque political strategy. But actually everything you've just said suggests that you know there's there's corporate decision making that's contributing to culture wars there's there's a lot of other factors um is is that the case is this something that's happening more by accident than design i think it's a bit of both actually um in that the incentives and certainly the short and medium term incentives are hugely you know like you want to build a loyal customer base it totally makes sense why organizations might do this and also you don't want to people your customers if they're really frustrated or upset by a very public stance that some an organization can say for example that it's homophobic like i can see why and an organization might want to intervene and to think about that, particularly if it's causes that are close to their employees' hearts. So um, I, I do think that there is, you know, like there's, uh, I understand why people will take these strong positions and it's important and a legitimate thing to do in a democracy. And I would never suggest that they don't. I think what I, I really push on is if you are taking those divisive stands, what are you going to then try and do to help reunite people afterwards? And what are you going to do to try and bring with you the people you disagree with? So I'm I'm very struck in this conversation. I'm making a few presumptions here about your own positions based on what I know about you. But when you've given examples of polarization that you've not liked, it's been people that have disagreed with you as if they are wrong and you 
couldn't possibly be. So you just talked about Kia Starmer in the sense that you were like, well, I thought Kia was right. Or when you talk about Jacob Rees-Mogg, it's in the sense of, well, I don't really like what he's doing. But what about if actually just some of the information you had wasn't right and you wanted to update your view? What about if it was someone on your own team that had behaved in a not great way? Oh, I'm definitely much slower. <laughs> it's not to say that I don't sometimes get there in the end, but I'm definitely much slower. But that's part of the problem. You know, like everybody's got, it's a societal thing here, you know, like that people can't, and it's a systemic thing where, which happens with polarization. So you, you began like the previous question by asking me about tech firms and how they do things and how they're incentive to drive engagement. Well, who's responsible for producing quite a lot of the content and the ads that go on there? It's human beings. Right. And it's easier for us to have a convenient baddie in Facebook who have, I I have to say, I'll repeat this. I've got a lot to answer for, but you know, there's human beings who tend to operate that or even set up the bots that then take advantage of things, you know? Um, and, and I think that's often where we should be challenging people to take a bit of responsibility where by just focusing on Facebook, it's nice to be let other people off the hook. I read an article the other week by uh, Theresa May's former chief of staff who seemed to suggest, and it was this was something that kind of opened my eyes to a different perspective. Essentially, he wrote the article based on the premise that the right is losing the culture war. Um, and it made me think, well, hang on a minute, because I, and you know, you will know this if you've listened to pre- previous episodes of the podcast, I think, and I use the term very loosely, the left or the liberals are losing the culture war. So is it possible or probable in your view from the research that you've done that actually both sides of this culture divide that's been created feel like they're losing? So uh, I don't know is the answer to that. Um, And I very deliberately nowadays when people ask me a question, I don't know the answer to say I don't know rather than take a position (laughs) because um, I've not seen, I mean, you can look at the electoral outcomes to see where people are winning or whether they're losing and what's going on. But it's not fair to ascribe how someone chose to vote just to a culture war issue. There'll be a lot more to it than that. And so I don't know the exact answer to that. And I think it's important when people don't know that they they say that um, and don't take a position because it's harder, as we talked about a minute ago, to update your position when you've already taken one than anything else. So I'm I'm not certain. Um, but also like the the political scientist and political campaigner in me says if you're that if you're made that way and you think that way, you never want to let yourself think you've won because you get lazy. So even if you are winning, it's more convenient to say you're in second place and you could just pull ahead if people came out and they backed you rather than saying, yeah, we're we're steaming away with this. It's all great because then people don't think it's important to support you because they don't think their vote or their, their voice will make a difference. And this is a question I definitely wasn't expecting to ask. It might be not might not be the best formulated question I've ever asked. But it, in what I was... In what I was driving at there is this sense that when you feel that you're losing, the psychology of of feeling like there is this great other which which vehemently disagrees with you and puts you on the back foot is is quite difficult. It drives anxiety and so on. And if, if, if it were the case, just a hypothesis, that everybody feels like they're losing the culture war, that creates a particularly kind of negative psychological environment for us to try and practice our politics. It, is that so how- it does it so yeah i think i'm probably there with you on that it feels like you should be right but i just haven't seen anything that definitely proves it um and it certainly is the case that you know 
polarization and heightened tension and feeling like you're losing can induce stress reactions in people. And people are more likely to then make decisions that further amplify polarization than reduce it in those circumstances. So you're probably right, I think. And your recent piece for uh, Radio 4, the BBC, you talked about some of the work that you did as a campaigner and perhaps looking back on that and realising that at times you'd helped to to create, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but helped to create or slightly further a problem um, that you didn't realise you were at the time. What is it about kind of recent models of campaigning that you now look back on and, and feel um, you might have done things slightly differently were you given the chance again? So I think one of the things that I definitely didn't do, which I should have done, um, and people people should, and which is a charity, so it engages who I worked for. So it, it, you know, it's restricted in how it can engage in very partisan campaigning. But what I wish we'd done is rather, and in general, rather than just focusing on target groups when you're trying to run a campaign, is to think about the people who disagree with you as well, and see what are they changing their mind? How is their perception of you? You know, what is it, what is occurring with them when you take particularly strident views? And we're terrible at measuring that and seeing it. And the thing is, is if you aren't, you know, some of the, the campaigns that you see, so I'll name some states, so the DCCC, and I think much less so nowadays, 38 degrees, but historically, you know, like it was deliberately all aimed to drive and provoke engagement, exactly like you were just talking about with Facebook and to take really strident messaging where you keep saying that you're good people, you know, you're the hero because you're helping bring about a campaign change and fighting against the odds. And the other people are bad and they are evil almost and um, if you make those you know that do that split and you're doing it to drive things if it doesn't have any impact what's the point of doing it right so we probably know it did have an impact and I think that's one of the other things I would look at is I suppose some of those narratives and how you mix things up and which messengers we used and you know that kind of and then looking to see what you could do to repair some of the divides that you have created because I think there's a huge bias on the whole within the campaigning community as we know it um, towards progressives which is actually quite excluding it means we don't get a lot of ideas on the table we should have done the final point i'd say around that is it's obviously become much cheaper with digital campaigning to keep in touch with people a lot um, and to reinforce those messages on a almost continual basis and there is quite a lot of research that shows um, that partisan divides increase at election times and decrease outside that as campaigning levels drop as campaigning levels are not particularly dropping any longer like it continually reinforces and reminds people of divides and doesn't give them space to find like a unifying moment so the the seminal study on this showed how americans felt much more american and were much less politically divided around independence day so right now as we're recording than they were on um when presidential elections were coming and that's because there was this bigger unifying concept between them all around independence day i am you had me thinking then, the reason I lost my thread, which I'll keep in the show, is because I was reflecting on when you challenged me about the Keir Starmer point um, yeah. and, thinking about, and thinking about Black Lives Matter and actually thinking about how much I feel I personally have learned from some of the most prominent campaigners on that issue, um, who are the same people in some cases that, are, that have had a go at Keir Starmer for changing his mind today. But the, so you, you've caused me to reflect to the extent that I've lost my thread on my next question. <laughs> 
it's right. I mean, it's a rich. So what I will say is like, it's what you did is incredibly natural, right? And how you processed it. And you were like, oh, well, maybe that it's really hard to think, oh, I might be wrong or to update your beliefs or to accept you changed your mind. And that's why, you know, like we put a huge focus on that as part of a way to try and tackle polarization is if more people start talking about it and reduce the costs and increase the benefits of doing so, then you start to normalize it you know, and it becomes okay to, to do so, um, rather than just saying, no, you are with me. You must, we must always all agree. And you can't change your beliefs or your policies in response to a changing external situation, which is kind of crazy, really. Sure. And I'm, you know, and I'm happy to kind of own up to the, to the, to the discomfort really of getting called out in that way that immediately because it creates this dissonance and and discomfort in me. But I think that's exactly the point that you're making. Yeah. That's exactly it. And it's a stress response. Like what you what you've gone through is it's a stress response, you know, because it's really hard. And so I spend quite a lot of time thinking about what can you do to make an environment where that is easier for people to talk and share? Yeah. And I think and that's where I think there's a brilliant tech related question. And I'm not a tech determinist by any means, but I do think that in the first episode of this series, Peter Pomerantsev talks about this question around, you know, how could you incentivize a kind of deliberative or discursive space that encourages people to, to find common ground and, and allows for the kind of dissonance of disagreement almost. Um, and that question I think is really powerful especially at a time when it feels to me instinctively like the social media the major social media platforms who have had a near monopoly on the kind of discursive uh, nature of of social are starting to fragment you see the right heading off onto parlor Facebook's under a huge amount of commercial pressure my total guess but instinct would be that we might be about to see a bit of fragmentation within the social media landscape if we see that so if we see that fragmentation it will then become even harder to create conversations between different groups and tribes and identities and that's something that that makes me worry is that a hypothesis you could buy into honestly probably not <laughs> Um, so I'm not certain I share that I think there's going to be a lot of fragmentation um, because Facebook is so much money that it just buys up any challenger, right? So if you look at the wider Facebook universe, it's not got some of the same things. And people, you know, don't like changing some of their their habits. Um, and it's also tremendously difficult to have these conversations online. It's not completely impossible. And it's also really difficult to scale it and really hard to scale it because face-to-face communication makes a difference when you're having these really challenging chats, you know, and, and they're, they are very difficult and you often, you might need facilitation and how do you, how do you scale that? And what do you do about it? Um, so I'm, I, I listened to Peter thing and that was one of the few points where I thought, I'm just not sure I agree with him, you know, um, uh, we can definitely make improvements. And there are a few pockets of the internet where that has happened and where there's quite different norms operating. So it's worth um, listeners checking out on Reddit. There's Change My View um, as a subreddit where people will go in and they'll put forward a thing. And there's a very a great system of incentives and rewards they've got for how people how people engage and you know challenge the viewpoints that they put forwards. But that's one thread that's developed 
extreme norms over a certain period of time that haven't spread beyond that. And so I'm slightly skeptical that in the same way of labeling big tech as the baddie or the only baddie in this place, that big tech is going to have the solution. And people don't like that because it's not a really neat and comfortable answer where people can throw some money at it and then scale it in a very Silicon Valley kind of way. You know, what's your proof of concept? How can we get this now affecting millions and millions of people with network effects? And the answer is it's a bit harder than that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And, and just coming back quickly to campaigns, and I know there are a few campaigners that listen to this show regularly, and I wanted to ask to what degree, as well as kind of furthering uh, identity through campaigns in organisations like 38 Degrees, do you think it, it is also part of the problem, the lack of friction that kind of online petitions and other forms of digital campaigning present to people when they're choosing to to get behind an issue and i ask that from the from the um from the point of view of thinking you know i've I've really just been really frustrated with the speed with which people start petitions huge numbers of people get involved very little happens and we end up getting the same style of government time after time after time So I think there's a lot more to why petition. So uh, in many ways, petitions are just a really easy way for people to signal support. And although going online has made it easier, it's not it's not a a huge big difference. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that I would say that the campaigning sector doesn't do as well as, you know, when I used to work in commercial lobbying firm and particularly around government relations. So a lot of it will be around, yeah, I'll demonstrate this. So I'll get someone to an opposition MP, typically because you're against the government to ask a PMQ, whereas there'll be much less like, oh, who's a senior civil servant that's running at a 
a very senior level, what papers do they read? Who can I get? How can I get this in front of them? You know, some of the the real nitty gritty, and that's because it's much harder to get access to that information. So I think that's one of many, many problems with it. Um, people are starting to put in bits of extra friction, though, to make things harder, not so much on signing a petition, um, but things like 38 degrees have changed how you can email MPs now. So there's no longer a standard template format. You have to write your own, which makes it much more meaningful when people get in touch, although they got slightly lower completion rates, it is more effective when they do that, you know, and I think that's got a point. The other thing is I say the language and the messaging and the design behind it. So I talked in the Radio 4 piece about how Save the Children had a policy of engage and enrage, you know, Amnesty International had a similar thing that was based on expose, shame, try and bring about change. And, you know, that can sometimes be a tremendously effective way to do it. But when it's your whole modus operandi, it does just feel like you're shouting at someone all of the time. And when you're permanently shouting at someone who's working really hard, I'd say, and is generally a decent human being, even if you disagree with them politically, probably going to get a bit cheesed off with you and not really listen. Um, and I think that is part of the problem that, that exists here is there was a total, we all got so excited by how the tools could increase the power of the politically powerless that we actually forgot about some of the more mundane and nuanced parts of campaigning and government relations. And so is the answer to that for the modern campaigner to, to think about having a bit more of a varied toolkit? Um, well, it depends on that. Yeah. So I think, I think some of that, yeah, but it, I mean, that's a big ask of a campaigns officer in a fairly junior role at an organization, you know, like how brilliant they are. That's a, to suddenly understand how the private secretary works and what the dynamics are in a couple of different government departments is like, that's hard. That normally takes like 15 or 20 years worth of experience to pick up. Sure. But I asked that as well, because a, a lot of the, you know, you, you, you were there. A lot of the sensible things for a campaigner or a communications professional to do you can now look back and think, well, hang on a minute, have we helped contribute to a further tribalizing or polarizing of the discourse? But that doesn't mean that actually, if you just look at it from the single kind of function that you are responsible for within an organization, you're probably taking the best, and I use air quotes around best, but the best professional choice. So if you're a fundraiser, and oh, obviously that's, fundraising yeah, that's is definitely a yeah. big part of this. So how do you, how do you start to address the fact that actually the right thing to do to deal with polarization might be the wrong thing to do to be seen to be doing your job as best you can. Yeah. And it's interesting that you pick out fundraising. So undoubtedly, I think the growth of small donor fundraising, particularly with, say, within some political campaigns and things like that, um, you look at how, you know, would Bernie's base have been the same thing without hundreds of thousands of small donors? Almost certainly not. Uh, I think that, you know, that feels fairly, fairly sensible to draw. But that is what you just hit on is like individually people you know, can be making very rational choices and in the short term, extremely rational choices to drive engagement, to hit their targets. You know, we all, you know, how many people have you recruited? How many people have you converted? But there are people in leadership positions who are meant to look beyond that. And I think that's not on the whole happened. And more than that, because campaigners as people are often not as well suited to some of those chief exec type roles or haven't tended to, tended to end up there. Some of that expertise hasn't landed right at the top in terms of how people think about it. I also just like, I really want to emphasize, I don't suggest that people should not run polarizing campaigns. It is important and legitimate and holds a government to account. Um, but you do just need to think about how to clear up divisions that you might have created afterwards. 
And is that? And one of my questions was going to be kind of if you if you stop twice to think about how oppositional you want to be, how do you decide when it's still right to oppose? But presumably the answer is on a case by case basis. Yeah, on a case by case. Occasionally, sometimes it will become more systemic. So I was flicking through this morning, actually looking at um, a presentation that Paul de Gregorio had done um, on Planned Parenthood and um, the ACLU, so the um, American Council, the Civil Liberties Group out here, sort of the equivalent of Liberty, um, and how their Trump selection and the introduction of immigration bans had fundamentally changed what they had done and how they'd engaged and how oppositionist they may be. But also what you do publicly and what you do privately sometimes behind the scenes can be quite different. And I certainly have seen occasions where there's been... Um, often within government where people have, and not always just in coalition government, where people have wanted to bring about change and it's suited them that there's been some agitators on the outside who agree with their view and have then persuaded somebody more senior to do it. You know, so there's, there's lots of different things at play here. It's just what I, the message I would really say is just be conscious of the divides that you might be inadvertently creating on what you might need to do to heal them. I think there is a tendency for people to be like, woohoo, campaign one. And even then, if there's a second stage, it's, you know, for example, the amazing abortion pro-choice campaigners in Northern Ireland, you know, the law has changed now, but they need to check that it's enforced and it's followed. And I think there is a second bit behind that, which is, and what about the people who disagree with you? How are you going to try and make sure that either they don't undo what you've done, or maybe they come around to your point of view and accept that it's not so bad, or even it's a good thing in the end of the day? Definitely. And we, we've covered quite a few areas in, in which you might need to kind of do things differently or make an intervention to try and contribute to kind of taking apart the intensity of polarisation at the moment. And I asked, uh, you know, is that about creating a space for more deliberative discourse? You said probably not. Um, you know, is it about trying different tactics? Well, as- certainly, certainly not. Certainly not alone. <laughs> and, is, and, that, and that's kind of you my know, point. People think it's a panacea. It is deliberative democracy. It can work very effectively. But not always. And it's certain like people want a simple solution here and it's not one doesn't exist. And even if it did, I don't think it would be that. So I'm not going to ask you for one solution, but I am going to ask you and and before I do, I'm conscious um, there's an episode of Government versus Robots, which will have aired by the time people listen to this uh, with a former CIA officer called Cindy Otis. Um, and I ask her about people's biases and how people's biases affect the um, political decisions that they make. But I want to ask you albeit there isn't one single answer, what do you think are the most important kind of watchwords that we can all have as individuals to help contribute to depolarizing? Yeah. So I think there's a few things that people can do, like at an individual level is try and think about whether your behavior will actually con- is conducive to changing anybody's mind or if it's reinforcing things and reinforcing divides. And one really good question, which we ask, you know, which is where all of this started for us, is asking people about an issue they've changed their mind on and why. And normally it won't be some like Damascene conversion moment that someone's had. It will have been an experience that makes them realize that what they've had wasn't typical. And to think about that and how you engage with people and how you try and persuade them to, to alter their position. Yes, deliberative democracy 
proxy, which we touched on, could help. You know, they did, I think it was nine citizens' assemblies in Ireland. And of those, the only two who produced things were rather famously on the change in abortion and the change, uh, the decriminalization of home or the legalization of homosexuality there. And, um, you know, so it doesn't always lead to what you want. So some of your older listeners may remember Tony Blair's big conversation, which I don't think led to very much change and things like that. It's, it's not, it, like I say, it's not a panacea. A couple of other things that you can do that's worth looking at is for people to think, one, about where they have common ground with people rather than just where they have divides, because it's much harder to separate. You know, that triggers your brain to rethink through the S and them categories. And that can be anything from like where you have a football team in common with somebody um, through to, I suppose you're from the same area of the country or anything like that. And to, to, to have a bit of a think about that. And when you're having conversations with people you disagree with, to focus on that to start with. To also, there's something called the illusion of experience planetary depth which that people often think they know much more about an issue than they do and about how it works. And if you ask someone to explain almost mechanistically about how something they want to happen operates, then often they'll find it much easier to pick plot holes in their own work, which is easier to accept than someone who they politically disagree with telling them that they are wrong. So I guess that's a few of the things that you can look at. And then there is, that's on an individual level. And then there's, I suppose, government policy and systemic stuff. Some of that is deliberative democracy. But also if you start to look at things, there's a I talk about it quite a lot, an amazing faculty member here at Stanford who did a survey in Israel and Palestine where he got Israelis to invest in the Palestinian stock market, which exists, believe it or not. And as a consequence of that, they were statistically significantly more likely to vote for peace-seeking parties. So you could imagine a situation where a government would give people money to invest, I say, or when you were made redundant, if you were, you know, I'm from South Wales, if what had happened there, if as people were made redundant, they were given shares in oil and gas or in renewable energy like how would that have made them feel might they be less less angry about some of those job losses would they find it easier to move to different places and for that people to perceive those people as part of their team where they were involved those kind of more innovative solutions are also things that government needs to look at so that was a very long-winded answer to saying no there's no panacea and it's really complex it's such a big problem that the answer is going to long-winded isn't fair but the answer is definitely going to be long yeah <laughs> yeah it's certainly not simple <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm, we're getting towards the end of my, my planned questions. I, I just wanted to share a reflection before I ask my last question, which is I remember towards the end of Brexit and when Brexit felt like the most important thing happening in the world and sort of using the parallel between, and I'm somebody, people who've worked, people who've lived with me certainly know this, people who've worked with me probably know this. I can be strongly emotional um, and forthright in my views. And sometimes when you do that, you can end up feeling quite embarrassed because you've behaved in ways that you're not necessarily proud of. And it is one of the hardest things that I try to do in my life is when I've kind of gone a little bit too far in some way, shape or form, is to acknowledge that to myself and climb down and allow myself to say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm open to I'm open to uh, engaging on this. And it feels like in a way as the kind of tribes, at least in the UK post Brexit, it's almost like someone needs to lead us through that process of kind of, you know, the argument's gone too far now. Um, someone has to take the first step and hold out the the fig leaf. But I don't know if there's a mechanism that exists to do that because usually you would look to leaders. This has turned into a question. It wasn't going to be. Usually you would lead into, you would look to leaders to, to, to shape that process. I'm not optimistic on that front right now. Is there a mechanism we can use to start that kind of brokering conversation? 
Yeah. So gosh, a few thoughts on that, which is one, I think you're right. You do tend to look to leaders, but we should think much more broadly about what leaders are. So there's a fantastic guy called Archie Brown, who wrote a book called The Myth of the Strong Leader or the Strong Political Leader about how actually leaders don't often have the influence that we all think they do, you know, and he uses, um, he talks about Tony Blair quite a lot and, you know, that he, you know, Labour would have won in 97, even if Tony Blair wasn't leader of the Labour Party and probably again in 2001 and 2005, given the circumstances. And it was much more a shared leadership with Brown taking some of the most important decisions on the euro. So I think we need to be slightly careful about identifying, you know, putting all of that because it also abdicates responsibility from ourselves to if it becomes the leader's problem to solve. Having said that, there are a few people I've noticed on the Brexit side trying to reach out um, and trying to do things. And they don't always get a great response, to be honest. So like Steve Baker, who was head of the ERG um, and isn't any longer, on the night of Brexit on the 31st, he didn't you know, go to any huge big parties. He gave a very thoughtful speech in Parliament where he said, I'm going to go home and yes, I'll have a quiet glass of champagne on my own, but I recognise it won't help the other side for me to crow about my victory here, you know, and that there's some people who feel very differently to me and I want to give them space and time to do that. And he didn't really get very many plaudits for that or anything like as much as, as he deserved. And I think that is part of the challenge, um, you know, and and people were understandably, if you'd felt very passionately about Brexit and particularly if you're working in employment rights, for example, are bound up in it, you know, people didn't want to hear that message. They just weren't ready to hear it. And so I think it, it, it becomes, that's one of the reasons I describe it often as a Gordian knot to try and undo it. And just like, so finally, you mentioned tech and whether things can help from there. And, and I, I was struck as you were asking the question that when people engage online, you get an increased dopamine hit for all of the engagement as people optimize for it and a decrease in the costs of being an asshole because you can't physically see someone and how you might be upsetting them. So when you were talking about like, you can tell you get cues from people if they don't like what you say, or you think you've gone too far. If you remove a lot of those cues because you can't see somebody's face, then you could sort of see how people could start spiraling into assassinary territory quite quickly and unintentionally. For sure. And I think one of the, the, the visual cues thing feels, you know, to me, probably been helpful in this conversation. Sometimes in this podcast, I've, I, on this series, I've missed being in a room with someone because it helps with the flow of the conversation. Just to wrap up, Ali, I usually try and end on a kind of what's a positive note, but I want to ask you a different question. And it, it may be that it's a poorly framed version of the question that you ask all the guests on your no podcast. Um, which, you know, you, yeah. you like to ask, when was the last time you changed your mind? I was going to ask you, when was the last time you feel like you lost an argument? Oh, um, I don't know if I frame it in my head as winning and losing arguments, actually. Um, if you mean, if the, the subtext of your question is, when is the last time that, like, I've updated my beliefs on something? I don't know if this is the, is that, is that the subtext of your question? Yeah, probably. And that is the same as when was the last time you changed your mind, right? And maybe therein lies the, the challenge of framing on these on these questions. Yeah, I, d I don't think it's helpful to, to tell someone that they've lost and then ask them to be a bit vulnerable with you. Um, but um, I suppose I have, um, there's a few things that I've definitely... I was a bit ignorant of um, beforehand and where I've I've changed my mind slowly that's in the, the news at the minute. I mean, I do it all the time, but, you know, like I didn't used to be as certain about taking down statues, 
for example, around the Black Lives Matter stuff. And I was kind of like, well, hang on, can't we tell a better history around them and leave it as part of a complete history and go from there? And then as I dug more into what was going on, that was based on my own ignorance. So, for example, I didn't realize that a lot of the statues that went up here um, in the States, they didn't go up, you know, after immediately after the Civil War. They went up in the 50s and the 60s as a response to the civil rights protest and people digging in then. And I think, hang on, that doesn't mean that it was as important a part of your history. You're not like, this is not completely there. And I updated and changed my view on that quite a lot of those statues really should come down rather than just be told in, in better context. And that wasn't just because we were holding them to um, modern standards, you know, like Henry VIII was clearly, Henry VIII was not a man who treated women with respect, right? But yet there's still quite a lot of stuff out there. So it's not just about the historical context of things. It's about why were they put up at the time and what did it do? And what does that do for the narrative of what's going on now? And I've definitely like updated my view and had a properly good schooling on that, particularly from some of my black friends out here. And I recognize that they shouldn't need to do a lot of that labor and I should do a bit more about it. So I've tried to be much more curious. So I guess that's, that's a, 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 I hope at least a partial answer to your question. Yeah, no. And I think, I think, I think you're definitely not alone in that um, in recent weeks and months. I find the, the lost point quite interesting because I think if we are going to make it easier for people to, to be concessional or concessionary in their debate, maybe we do need to accept that sometimes we lose an argument because that's part of the, the process of democratic discourse. But you're, you're right. It's harder to lose than to have acknowledged you've changed your mind. But if they're ultimately the same thing, um, the framing you know making it okay to lose is probably part of the is probably part of the challenge but we will run out of time if we try and jump into that one i am i want to say thank you very much for for taking part that's been a challenging and insightful conversation and i'm sure everybody will enjoy listening to it so thanks very much for joining me it's my pleasure thank you for having me That's all for this week. I think there's some really good reminders in there to think about what we can do ourselves to try and combat polarisation and get a bit better at agreeing to disagree. We'll be back next time, but in the meantime, thanks as ever to Sky Redmond for her help with the editing and production of the podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. 